So let me pray, and then we'll jump into this passage. Um, Father, we, uh, we thank you that as we've sung about and prayed and reflected on already, uh, that you're a merciful God. We thank you that you require mercy, not sacrifice. And we pray that you would make that clear to each one of us today as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I kind of joked earlier, but we spent the last eight weeks or so looking at Jesus Christ as he'll come at the end of time. Like, what, what will happen and what is he like when he comes in the future? Uh, and we saw in there that he comes like a warrior. He comes as a judge. We see him as the highly exalted one seated on a throne. But that's not how he came the first time. And that's what we're going to look at this week and a few more times in the month of November is what, is it, what did it look like when Jesus came the first time? What was he like? What kinds of things did he do? And the first time he came, he came not with a sword, but with a stethoscope, so to speak. He came the first time not as a warrior, but as a healer. In his second coming, what we saw in Revelation was his work with humanity as a whole. But what I want to look at now is what was his work like with individuals? How did he interact with individual people? And so today we're going to start a recurring series that we're going to jump in and out of. Uh, it's probably going to take us maybe a couple of years to go through all of this, um, but we're starting it today. Uh, and the series is called The Great Physician. And the whole thing is inspired by a book, one of my favorite books, um, by a long-deceased pastor and scholar named G. Campbell Morgan. Um, who He was a British preacher. He actually lived here in L.A. Uh, and preached here in L.A. Uh, for part of his life. Uh, so there's a kind of cool connection there uh, with him. And he wrote this book, The Great Physician. And what he does in the book is he looks at how does Jesus interact with different individuals through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and so he actually explores 49 interactions with individual people. And so we're going to do that too, but we'll do it in several week chunks, uh, several times a year until we get through all 49 of them. Um, in the book, in the first chapter, his great insight about Jesus is this. This is what he says. He says, he never approached two human souls in the same way. When our Lord approached a human being, there were great facts common to humanity, forever present to his mind. Whereas it is equally true that the infinite variety of human needs was so recognized that he never employed the same exact method twice over. In other words, you know, he only said to one person, you should be born again. Why did he do that? Why didn't he say that to everyone? Uh, and so he deals with each individual person exactly as they need to be dealt with. He meets them exactly where they are. Whatever issues, problems, brokenness, weakness, pride, he dealt with them, not generically, but individually. And so when Jesus comes across an individual, he knows their heart, he knows their needs, he knows exactly how to meet them right where they are. And the reality is we're going to see that he knows our needs better than we do. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I came home from a trip, and on that trip, I'd eaten lots and lots of fish, which is not necessarily my favorite thing, but I was trying to be culturally sensitive, and so I ate fish for pretty much every meal. And about halfway through the trip, I started, I was really swollen, like in the back of my mouth, near the throat. And uh, I wasn't sick, I didn't have any of the other symptoms of being sick, so I was like, I, I think I swallowed a fish bone, and I think it got lodged in the back of my mouth. And so it was like swelling up like crazy. In fact, you guys probably don't even know that I preached with this. I could barely breathe. And uh, so I went to the doctor on a Sunday afternoon and I said, okay, I think I swallowed a fishbone. I, like I can barely swallow or breathe. And she's like, mm, we'll see. 
And I was like, no, it's definitely like I ate fish for every meal, and I feel like there's something in there. And she's like, well, let's see. Let me, let me run a couple of tests. So she runs a couple of tests, and she comes back, and she says, it's definitely not a fish bone. Uh, she goes, if it was a fish bone, it'd be further down your throat. So she's like, it's definitely not a fish bone. Uh, I can tell you exactly what it is. She's like, you have a swollen gland, and you just need some antibiotics and some anti-inflammatory, and this will be gone by tomorrow. She knew better than I did what was wrong with me. She knew way better than I did. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is like. That we might come to him thinking that we've got this problem, and he might actually say, no, 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 there's something else that you need to deal with. There's a root cause, there's something else. And he knows exactly how to meet that need. He's able to diagnose much better than we are because he is the great physician. Now, other than the fact that I like G. Campbell Morgan, I sort of identify him with, a, with him in a number of ways. Uh, why are we looking at Jesus in this way? Well, there's two main reasons, and I'm guessing that each one of us can identify with one or both of these reasons at any given time. So the first might be, uh, you might feel like from time to time, or maybe always, you don't feel loved by God. That might be how you're feeling. Like maybe he's cold towards you or uninterested in you. And that often leads us to then not feel like we want to respond to him in love because we're like, well, it doesn't feel like he's loving me, so why would I love him back? That's one reason to look at Jesus in this way. The second is that we don't feel like loving other people. Perhaps we think them immoral in some way and therefore like unworthy of love, and so this person, and I don't like how they live their life, and so I don't want to show love to them. Or maybe we feel unloved by them, and so therefore we're like, well, I'm going to just withhold love from this person who feels like they're not loving me. And I think approaching a study of Jesus in this way, by looking at him as the great physician, looking at how he deals with individuals, will actually help us with both things. Uh, So what we're doing today is just an introduction. We're going to look at this passage in Matthew where Jesus refers to himself as a doctor. And what we're going to see in this passage is that You neither feel your way to being loved or feel your way to loving someone. You act and the feelings follow. Uh, In order to see that, we're going to look under three headings. So the physician, the patient, and the pill. See what I did there? That was pretty good. Uh, So let's take a look first at the physician himself. Uh, We're not going to spend much time looking at how Jesus interacts with Matthew because that's a future sermon. But uh, this Matthew, the tax collector... Uh, is the very same Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew. And when Jesus says these words, and uh, he says them in Matthew's house, so he's there having a meal. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 12. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm the doctor. I'm the physician who came here to heal the sick, the sinners. Now, in the minds of those who are having dinner with Jesus at Matthew's house, they must have been thinking, okay, well, what qualifies you to be the doctor for sinners? What qualifies him to do that? And I think we should ask the same question. What is it that makes Jesus a competent physician? Uh, Back in 2016, in a nursing home in Cincinnati, which is how every great story begins, Uh, There was a woman, an 87-year-old resident named Patty Reese, who uh, they're having dinner, and she starts choking. Um, And it wasn't, apparently this wasn't uncommon at the nursing home. Uh, Normally the staff uh, would come running over and they'd do the Heimlich maneuver. And do you all know what that is? 
Heimlich maneuver? I hope you all learned it. Yeah, okay. Um, but on this day, there was a 96-year-old man sitting next to Patty, uh, who very calmly got up from his chair, walked around behind her, and starts doing the Heimlich maneuver. And as the staff is running over to the table, instead of taking over from the 96-year-old man, one staff member said to another, hold on a minute, that's Dr. Heimlich himself. <laughs> that's right. At 96 years old, Dr. Heimlich, the inventor of the Heimlich maneuver, performed it and saved this woman's life. And believe it or not, at 96 years old, after inventing it back in 1974, this was the first time he was ever able to use it to save another person's life. Uh, there's perhaps no one more qualified in the world to perform the Heimlich maneuver than Dr. Heimlich himself, the man who spent years and years of his life researching and looking for the best way to save someone from choking. Apparently he would practice on dogs. I don't know how he got them to choke, but that's what he would do. And not only that, but he spent the rest of his career teaching and demonstrating how to use it. Uh, here he is on the Johnny Carson show in 1979, uh, doing it on Johnny Carson. Um, and so not only is he the creator, but he's perhaps the most practiced and experienced man at the Heimlich in history. In other words, he's the most competent physician to perform the Heimlich maneuver on the planet, even at 96 years of age. And when it comes to asking the question, then what makes Jesus Christ a competent physician? What makes him the great physician? The same two things hold true. He is the utterly competent creator, and he's more than competently experienced in life itself. Later on in the New Testament, uh, in Colossians chapter 1, which comes on the screen for you, it says this. For in him all things were created in Christ. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And here's what that passage is saying. It's saying that he is qualified to understand the entire condition of human, humankind because he created humans. You and I, all of humankind, were created in him and through him and for him. Now, perhaps we need to back up because you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, didn't Jesus Christ come along like 2,000 years ago? Well, no. The Christian teaching, the biblical teaching, is that Jesus has existed from all eternity, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, that the three of them existing in perfect unity as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that that perfect unity, that tri-unity, created everything. In other words, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, which means one of the things that qualifies him to be the great physician is that he, like Dr. Heimlich, is the creator. But that's not all that qualifies him, because he also came down from heaven and took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's what John chapter 1 says, that the creator himself became a man. Which means he knows what's in us. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows our emotions. He knows our temptations, because he had emotions. He had temptations. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, it should be on the screen, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. 
And so not only does he know the mechanics or better the biology of humanity, he knows it from the inside. He knows it intimately. He knows the heart. He knows the mind. He knows the soul of humanity because he became a man experiencing joy and sorrow, pain and happiness, friendship and grief. And the only way Dr. Heimlich could be better acquainted with the maneuver that he created to save people is if he himself chokes and somebody did it on him. And yet that's how far Jesus went. He didn't just create human beings, he became one. And here's what it means then. It means that we can come to him with anything and he understands. He's been there. He understands the loneliness. He understands the joy. He understands the temptation. He understands the victory. He understands the pain. Because he was tempted. Because he was weak. Because he was broken. Because he went through excruciating pain and utter loneliness. Because he experienced joy and friendship and love and victory and happiness too. And so this truth begins to deal with that first reason we said we're going to do this study, that sometimes people don't feel loved by God. But just consider these truths, these two truths. First, out of an overflow of love that God the Father has for God the Son, all three persons of the Trinity created everything. Creation exists because God is a Trinity loving one another. The whole universe, right down to the tiniest molecule. In other words... Creation itself is an expression of the love of God. But the second truth only intensifies the first. It's out of his love for his creation, Jesus Christ, the creator himself, leaves the glory of heaven and empties himself and becomes a man. He enters into his creation as a servant in order to serve his creation by dying for precisely those who don't deserve it. And so it can't be that God doesn't love you. That's not a possibility. Erase that from your mind. It cannot be ever in any situation that God does not love you. Your mere existence is an act of his love. And Jesus Christ coming to earth is his love in the flesh. And if you're dealing with that first problem that we discussed, if you feel like God doesn't love you, it just can't be true. So how do you move past that? Well, you act as, as though he does love you. You just do the things that a person who knows they're loved would do. Uh, here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. And this is a long quote, but I, I feel like I need to read the whole thing. He says, people are told they ought to love God. And yet they cannot find any such feeling in themselves. What are they to do? The answer is, act as if you did. Do not sit trying to manufacture feelings. Ask yourself, if I were sure that I loved God, what would I do? When you found the answer, go and do it. Nobody can always have devout feelings. And even if we could, feelings are not what God principally cares about. Christian love, either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will. And then get this. He will give us feelings of love if he pleases. 
We cannot create them for ourselves, and we must not demand them as a right. But the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. And so it it can't be that God doesn't love you. And so how do you experience that? Well, you just do the things that you would do if you knew that was true. So what what does that look like? What's the answer then to the question, if I were sure that I love God, what would I do? Well, what do people who love God do? Well, they sing wholeheartedly to him in worship. They confess their sins to him. They express their gratitude to him for the ways they know he's blessed them. They read his word and they sacrificially do acts of kindness and mercy and service and love for others. You know, here at Christ Church, we, we just put those things this way, up, down, up, and out. They look up to worship. They come to him uh, downcast in confession. God lifts them up through the ways he's blessed us through Christ. And then he sends us out to live as those who've been blessed by Jesus. And so there, there he is, as the great physician. We can come to him with anything, and he loves us anyway. And so let's look now at the patient, because Jesus wants us to come to him with anything and everything. In other words, he wants to be your doctor, and for you to be his patient no matter what you come to him with. Uh, so let's look at the patient now, point two. Look, look again at our text, verse 12. Remember, he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, in verse 13, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, what's he saying? Well, there's a lot behind these two sayings, but let me just summarize it for you by saying this. Uh, There are some people who are so self-satisfied, so self-righteous, they don't think they need saving. And yet they do. This is what Jesus is getting at. And most of the people at this meal at Matthew's house, uh, or some of the people... Um, at this meal at Matthew's house are, are the religious scholars, the leaders, and they're the ones who are the self-righteous. And on the one hand, Jesus, in essence, is saying, I didn't come to earth for the self-righteous because the self-righteous, they're not conscious of their need for a doctor. They don't realize that on the outside, they look as healthy as can be, but on the inside is a cancer growing that will one day destroy them from the inside out. And on the other hand, he's saying, I did come for those who are very conscious of their sin and desperately aware of their need for a savior. Because not only are the self-righteous at this meal, but Matthew and his friends who are considered the most immoral in the society are sitting around the table with Jesus. And they were the ones who saw their need for the doctor. In other words, what Jesus is saying with these two statements is, it's only those who are in touch with their own brokenness and weakness, the only those who are conscious of their own sin who can accept me. And in making such an extreme statement like this, what Jesus was doing is saying, both to those who know they're not righteous and to those who are self-righteous, you both need me exactly the same. And we know he thinks this because later on in Matthew chapter 19, Luke chapter 18, he actually says no one is good, not one person is good, except God alone. And so even those who think they're righteous, they're not good either. Everyone, every person, every every human being who's ever been born is a patient in need of a doctor. But not everyone is aware. Those who think they're self-righteous need him just as much as those who know they're unrighteous. They just haven't realized it. 
but they're not humble enough to admit it. Now, this dynamic of self-righteousness and unrighteousness, it actually still plays itself out in our culture today. In fact, a person might be able to argue that this division between righteous and unrighteous is even stronger and bigger in our culture than it's ever been in American culture. We're living in today in as moralistic a culture as we've ever been in. Everything is moral now. Every decision you make is moral in our culture. Um, how can that be? Well, we've talked about this before, but virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is not just having virtue, but it's putting your virtue on display, making sure that everyone who knows you knows that you're a virtuous person. In other words, self-righteousness. Now, here's the thing. Self-righteousness, it used to be just for the religious, you know, for the Christians. But now, self-righteousness seems like it's for everyone now. The non-religious are just as moralistic and self-righteous as the religious. Now, I don't want to get off track here because what's the point here? What's the point we're trying to make here? Well, the point is this. The more self-righteous you are, the less you realize you're a patient in need of a doctor. The more you know you've got your morals down and everyone else doesn't, the less you realize how much you need a doctor. And also, the more you become judgmental and condemning of those who are most obviously in need of a doctor in your view, the less merciful you are. And that's the point Jesus is trying to make by these two statements when he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, and I've come to call the righteous, not, not to call the righteous, but the sinners. He says these two things so that both those who know they need a doctor will feel welcome to come to him, and those who don't think they need saving will wake up to their need. Now, as we go through the series off and on over the coming year and probably more, we'll see Jesus interacting with all sorts of individuals. And by, by and large, these individuals that he interacts with fit into these two categories. He, he's either interacting with someone who's self-righteous or someone who knows they're unrighteous. Almost every one of these interactions, the person he interacts with is going to be in one of those two categories. These are the patients. And the point I want to make here is that each and every one of us is a patient in need of the great physician. Both those who think they're righteous and those who do not. Now, there's a quick litmus test to find out which one you are, by the way, if you're self-righteous or if you know you're unrighteous. Uh, it goes like this. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18. He said, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And when you came here today, did you come here knowing who all the immoral people are? Knowing that you're better than them? Did you come here today thinking that God owes you something? 
for all the good things that you've done? Because of how moral you are? Because if you did, then guess what? You're the self-righteous one. And you need mercy as much, if not more, than those who came in saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. We're always one or the other. That's why we're going to look at how Jesus interacts with people in this way. Well, regardless of which one you are, we all need the same medicine, and that's our third point, the pill. I know I could have said the prescription, but pill is better. Because look at what Jesus says in between these two statements. Look at the start of verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's actually a quote from Hosea chapter 6. So what's the medicine? What's the pill here that everyone needs to swallow? It's mercy. Mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. And think again about how moralistic our culture has become. Our culture has become so moralistic that if anyone does does anything, says anything, even thinks anything that goes against the majority collective moral conscience, what do we do with them? We cancel them. They're out of the spotlight. They're out of the friend group. They're out of the family. And in a sense, in some ways, that maybe is giving people what they deserve because maybe they said something or maybe they did something or maybe they thought something that really is immoral, that really does deserve punishment. But the fact that we're willing to cancel anyone for just about anything, here's what that's saying about our culture. We've become so unmerciful. There's no longer any mercy. We've become more moralistic and less merciful. And here's what Christianity ought to stand out. Here's here's where it should stand out in the culture. And yes, I realize that for many years, Christianity has been the opposite to this. But what Christianity actually teaches, what the Christian gospel actually shows us, is that Christianity is the merciful worldview. Perhaps the only merciful worldview. The Christian church ought to be the place of mercy. Why? Well, look at what Jesus says here. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, why does he desire mercy? Well, it's because he is merciful. And when he says this, what he's saying is, don't look at your sacrifices. Don't look at the sacrifices that you've made for me and try and prove your righteousness to me. Instead, look at the sacrifice that I have made for you. Uh, This past Thursday night, some of us looked at um, Titus chapter 3. And here's what it says in Titus chapter 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, 
but because of his mercy. And so Jesus Christ, the one through him and for whom all things in heaven and on earth were created, he went to the cross and made the ultimate sacrifice, not to pay us back for all the good things that we've done. You saw what it says there in verse 3. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasure. No, not because of good things we've done, but because of his mercy. Not giving to us what we deserve. At the cross, Jesus Christ is showing mercy instead of us receiving the just punishment for our immoral words and actions and thoughts. Instead of us getting it, Jesus got it. Now, what this is leading to is that you don't, I mean, think about it. You don't get healthy before you go to the doctor. That's absurd. Now, you come to him now. You come to him in your brokenness, in your pride, in your weakness. Because when you read through the rest of the gospel accounts, you find this to be true of Jesus, that to the thirsty, he gives water. To the hungry, he gives bread. To those in darkness, he gives light. To the burdened, he gives rest. To the anxious, he gives peace. And to the guilty, he gives mercy. Now, I hope you're collecting all of this up and you're beginning to see just how intense is the love of God for you. That he would do that, that he would go to those lengths to give you mercy. And so it can't be that God doesn't love you. He loves you beyond what you can even possibly imagine because he loves you not because of the good things that you've done, not because of the good person that you are, but he loves you in spite of all the wrong that you've done. And that's what mercy is. And what this passage is showing us is, is this. You can't have Christianity without mercy because you can't have the cross without mercy. Now, I just want to try and wrap this up and bring it home. Because if this is true, if Jesus Christ has shown us mercy, if as the great physician, he is the merciful one, it means that we can then show mercy to others. That if we have received mercy, then we can give mercy, especially to those, especially to those who we think don't deserve it. And this is one of the main takeaways I want for us through this entire series. There are going to be people that Jesus interacts with that you and I would hate. That we would prefer to see cast aside and unloved. But every time, every time Jesus meets them, with mercy. In other words, he shows them an act of mercy. Now here's the point of this. You and I will never become merciful if we don't do acts of mercy. You don't just wake up one day a merciful person. Mercy is one of those things, actually, you never feel like doing it first. In fact, you'll always feel the opposite. You'll always want someone to get what they deserve. And so don't sit around wondering if you can or should show mercy. Act as if you are merciful. And you'll find over time that you become merciful. And you might even find that you begin to love those who you previously hated or disagreed with or wanted to cancel. But the more you show mercy 
the more you become merciful. The more merciful you become, the more loving you become, especially to those who you hate. That's how this works. It doesn't mean you agree with them or you condone their actions. It just means you're more like Jesus who has shown you mercy when you least deserved it. So as we go through this series off and on, I hope these words ring in our ears. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And let's pray. Father, we... We say thank you for the mercy that you've given to us. And so would you make us merciful? Father, would you show us how merciful and how loving you are to us? Lord, we know we're not promised feelings of love and feelings of mercy, but by your grace, Lord, would you do that for some of us? Lord, help us to love people the way that Jesus did. And help us individually to feel the love from you that Jesus felt. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.